Broadcasting from Rancho Cucamonga, California, this is A History of California. Episode 2, An Indigenous Prehistory of California. Hello, and welcome back to the show. On this episode, we'll discuss the first occupation of California by the peoples, cultures, and nations that today are all grouped together as indigenous or native Californians. But first, a note on terminology. I will not be using the word Indian since these folks had no cultural connection with all the different peoples, cultures, and nations that lived on the Indian subcontinent in the past or currently live in the modern-day nation-state of India. Instead, I'll use the words indigenous or native or aboriginal or even autochthonic if I really need a fourth word to describe the same concept. Today's living descendants of the First Peoples, of course, have the right to label and define themselves however they damn well please. Second, a quick primer on the concept of prehistory. It's pre, so it comes before history. Alright, so then that begs the question, when does history start? No one really knows who the first human was to be interested enough in past events to study them in a systemic way, though I am confident in saying this person was probably a nerd. As an institution, then, history draws a line at the advent of a written language. Whenever a civilization on the globe develops a writing system that can be preserved and later analyzed and interpreted by temporal outsiders, then history as a process can be done. Studying the past of peoples who had not yet or never would develop a writing system is technically, then, prehistory. A written language is the dividing line between history city on one side and the much more vast unknown stretches of prehistory beyond. That doesn't mean what occurred before a written language wasn't important, or that the people who lived during prehistoric times don't matter. Those things were important, and those people do matter. But the current day scholars and investigators who study prehistory are best described as anthropologists, perhaps more specifically archaeologists, rather than straight-up historians. So with that out of the way, let us begin with the initiation of indigenous occupation of California in prehistoric times. Who were the first people to live here? Archaeologists are confident that North America was initially inhabited by people traveling eastward from Siberia, across an ancient landmass called Beringia, and from there spread southward and eastward. The questions of exactly when and how this movement happened, however, are yet to be totally settled. To get a better grip on those questions and debates around them, let's take a look at the setting. Most agree that humans first moved into the Americas at the late end of the Pleistocene epoch, more commonly known as the Ice Age. As the name would suggest, huge portions of the Earth's surface were covered over in sheets of ice up to a mile thick. With so much of the planet's water trapped in these huge ice sheets, the world's oceans dropped 300 to 400 feet below current sea levels exposing coastal landmasses that today exist only underwater. Such was Beringia, which connected Northeast Asia with Northwest North America and acted as a bridge to the New World. 
Did the giant ice sheets of the late Pleistocene create an unpenetrable barrier to the Americas from Beringia? The last glacier-heavy stage of the Pleistocene was about 26,000 to 18,000 years ago. So, if those ice sheets were impenetrable, that meant you had to wait for the ice sheets to melt down enough to allow a land passage through. Which means that America wasn't inhabited until at least 18,000 years ago give or take a few extra thousand years to really soften the ice up. But what if the ice sheets weren't an impenetrable barrier? More specifically, what if people had the ability to hop on boats and row their way around the ice along the coast? If that's the case, then humans could have arrived in the Americas earlier than 18,000 years ago. Really, they could have arrived as early as they acquired the boat technology to allow a coastal migration at all. In this formulation, late Pleistocene humans could have made their way southward, riding the California currents along the western coast of North America, perhaps following a corridor of underwater kelp habitats along the shoreline, like a sort of kelp highway. If this theory is true, then California is smack dab in the middle of the first American's coastal route into the continents. The California that these journeyers first encountered would be unrecognizable to a 21st century Californian. As I mentioned earlier, late Pleistocene sea levels were 300 to 400 feet lower than current day levels. Extending the California shoreline to the west by as much as 18 miles and uncovering flat coastal terraces that today exist only under the sea. San Francisco Bay and the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta were instead deeply cut river valleys. Down south off the Santa Barbara coast, the present-day four Channel Islands, uh, sorry for leaving you guys out of the tour last week, of San Miguel, Santa Rosa, Santa Cruz, and Anacapa were merely the high points of a unified 77-mile-long island called Santa Rosa. Temperatures were on average 8 to 10 degrees Celsius cooler than today, and the Sierra Nevada were covered by a large ice cap. As well, juniper and pinyon pine forests covered the southern deserts. The Pleistocene epoch lasted nearly two million years, though, and both the climate and resulting habitats on the ground swung back and forth between warmer and cooler periods in this time. Oscillations between cool-adapted conifer forests and warm-adapted pine and oak woodlands occurred in the central and northern parts of the state as the climate shifted towards or away from glaciation. Repeated growth and retreat of glaciers in the Sierra Nevada highlands created today's iconic U-shaped granite valleys, while repeated infusions of glacier melt formed pluvial lakes in valley and desert basins, such as Clear Lake, Tulare Lake, Lake Mannix, Lake Mojave, and China Lake. So for all we know, evidence of who truly first arrived in the Americas is buried 300 feet under the Pacific Ocean. It shouldn't be too surprising, then, that the oldest verified sites of human occupation in California are on those four remaining North Channel Islands near Santa Barbara. Sites of paleo-coastal settlements have been found at Arlington Cave, Daisy Cave, and Caldwell Bluffs that are at least 12,000 years old. The ancient people who lived in this paleo-coastal culture, stretching from the shoreline from north to south, are the probable ancestors of the Chumash and Yukian speakers, arriving by boats and inhabiting pockets of the coastline straight through to the Mission era. However, 
this wasn't the only route into the state. Rather, California was most likely populated by multiple in-migrations by both a southward coastal route and pathways leading westward from the continental interior. Those who came in via the interior route were likely big game hunters who used a specifically shaped stone point called a Clovis point. Today, there remains a large concentration of Clovis point archaeological sites in the upper Mojave Desert and Great Basin areas, with other sites scattered around the Cascade and Peninsula ranges. Remember, during the Pleistocene, the desert areas would have been much more heavily forested than now, and those big pluvial lakes had not yet evaporated. Up until the last couple decades or so, the archaeological consensus was that these Clovis Point people were actually the first to inhabit the Americas, arriving through an ice-free corridor in modern-day north-central Canada, nomadically chasing roving herds of mammoths and bison, and quickly spreading outward to the rest of the two Americas between 13.2 and 12.9 thousand years ago. Clovis Point sites are impressively widespread in North America in this relatively narrow 300-year span of time, but modern archaeologists are increasingly doubtful that these Clovis Point peoples predated the coastal migrants, especially with the discovery of a 14,000-year-old occupied site near the coast of Chile called Monte Verde that itself predates all the Clovis sites. Another Clovis theory that today remains under doubt is the overkill hypothesis, stating that the Clovis big game hunters drove late Pleistocene megafauna into extinction. In this case, mega just means big and fauna means animal. So for example, in the Los Angeles basin, you had giant ground sloths and large horses trying to dodge dire wolves, giant short-faced bears, and the official state fossil, the saber-toothed cat. While it is true most of these Pleistocene megafauna all went extinct within a few thousand years of each other, it's pretty doubtful the Clovis Point makers were responsible for all of them. Rather, climatic fluctuations associated with the Younger Dryas, a quick reversal of a thousand years long warming trend that brought back glacial conditions, are more likely responsible for the megafaunal extinctions. In addition, only the bones of bison and mammoths have been found at the mass kill sites where Clovis points also tend to be found, and these types of sites are all outside of California. The extent to which the Clovis people even relied on big game for their day-to-day -day sustenance was probably overstated in the Clovis first theory. The Clovis point people definitely existed in the Americas, but they probably didn't hunt dozens of megafauna species into extinction, and the theory that they arrived first in the Americas is, as stated by Kent Lightfoot and Otis Parrish, quote, in tatters. So, then by 11,000 years ago, California was definitely inhabited by at least two distinct cultures, a paleo-coastal fishing and gathering culture, and an interior projectile point producing culture that may or may not have focused on hunting big animals. At this point, the cold Younger Dryas climatic period had ended, and the climate resumed warming out from cold glacial conditions. Coinciding with this 5,000-year-long period of climatic warming were shifts in the material artifacts left behind in the archaeological record. Along the coast, the first paleo-coastal cultures give way to the Millingstone culture. Recognized at over 100 sites in Southern California, 
The milling stone culture was characterized by a lack of projectile points and not a lot of bone artifacts, but a heavy reliance on stone tools to grind up small seeds. Small seeds and edible root structures called corms become more apparent in the archaeological record at sites on the Channel Islands and Southern California coast at this time. The milling stone people also likely gathered other sources of plant food like agave and yucca and definitely buried their dead in rock cairns. During this warming interval, conifer forests rapidly declined along the central and southern California coasts in favor of oak woodlands, chaparral, and coastal sage scrub. Chaparral and coastal sage scrub environments are densely packed with herbs and shrubs that produce usable small seeds, many of which were readily adopted as a food source by the milling stone culture. Back in the interior, a separate culture appears in the archaeological record that may have evolved out of the earlier Clovis Point peoples. Known as the Lake Mojave culture, it's characterized by high numbers of stone projectile points, knives, perforators, and formalized rather than simple flake tools. They would have experienced a warming climate where cool adapted tree species retreated further uphill and the Mojave's juniper and pinyon forests were slowly replaced by warm adapted desert scrub. As in-migrations of people arrived and settled and reproduced along the coast and interior of California, they probably sought out the best available environments in which to live. A likely process through which that happened is an idea called Ideal Free Distribution, or IFD for short. According to IFD theory, different habitats and environments can be more or less suitable for humans to occupy, and so humans develop preferences and can rank which environments they like the best, then next best, and so on. So, where hunter-gathering humans have total freedom of movement to stay and go wherever they please, they will settle in their most highly ranked environments available. Highest ranking sites are occupied first. Perhaps the shoreline areas where Chumash and Yukian peoples first arrived and settled were the most productive sites along the southward coastal pathway out of Beringia and Alaska. As more people move in or the population internally increases, Population densities in those most favored habitats will increase as well, which may end up decreasing its total productivity. At this point, local populations and newcomers may seek out less highly favored habitats to occupy instead, spreading human occupation geographically outward, but at population levels that are less dense. The most productive or favored habitats will remain the most densely populated, Less productive habitats will retain less dense populations at their peak, and the lowest ranked habitats will host the lowest densities of people. This process of ideal free distribution, repeated through thousands of years, filled out California with populations of humans in a staggered, non-geographically uniform manner. Overall, the early Holocene warm period between 11 and 6,000 years ago probably kept populations from expanding all that quickly inside California. While the Chumash and Yukian speakers stayed to the productive coastline, the archaeological record begins to verify the presence of another group of people moving in the interior of California by 10,000 years ago, speaking a family of languages called Hokan. Blocked out of the most productive coastal sites by the more densely populated Chumash and Yukian speakers, 
the less densely populated in-migrations of Hokan speakers either assimilated with the dominant existing cultures on the coast or carried on their Hokan languages in California's various lower-ranked habitats. Archaeological evidence indicates the Hokan speakers were occupying the North Coast Ranges and Klamath Mountains as early as 9 to 8,000 years ago, moving into a section of the state where warming temperatures helped pine, cedar, Douglas fir, oak, and tan oak forests replace cool-adapted conifer forests. Annual summer droughts were also established in the Northwest Mountains by 8,000 years ago, with high frequencies of fires making their way through oak and cedar woodlands. The Hokan speakers had even occupied Death Valley by about 9,000 years ago, and though it was less arid than today, was still experiencing a shift towards warm and dry adapted woody shrubs in place of conifer and juniper forests. The period of early Holocene warming ended about 6,000 years ago. And by 5,000 years ago, new technologies and strategies for acquiring food helped California populations to grow and began specializing in intensive use of local resources. One such new technology was the mortar and pestle, which gradually began to replace the mono and matate as the preferred method for grinding plant parts into powder. The coastal millingstone culture, for example, would use a smooth hand-tilled stone, a mono, to grind small seeds against a smooth, shallow depression inside a large boulder, a matate, using a horizontal scrubbing motion. Coming to replace that technology was the pestle, a stone tool used to grind things like acorns in a vertical smashing and twisting motion inside a stone bowl or depression known as the mortar. Though only minimally used around 5,000 years ago, by 3,000 years ago, they had replaced the old Mano and Matate on the Santa Barbara Channel and parts of the North Coast, potential evidence of those people's growing reliance on acorns as a food source. In addition to the adoption of mortar and pestle technology, fishing also increased along the Santa Barbara Channel at this time, as compound fish hooks, bone gorges, and beach signs and traps facilitated an increase in nearshore fishing and hunting of local sea mammals. The even distribution of offerings at Santa Barbara grave sites between 5 and 3,000 years ago indicated an egalitarian social structure, but that would certainly not remain the case as the millennia continued to pass. On the Channel Islands, the oncoming cooler climate helped grasslands to replace coastal sage scrub. Around the same time, about 5,000 years ago, another wave of in-migration introduced California to a new family of languages, the Panutian speakers. They first occupied the Central Valley, coming from the Northeast, the early stages of which may have been people fleeing the arid Great Basin at the tail end of the early Holocene warming period. Evidence of human occupation in the Central Valley is pretty sparse between 5,000 and 4,000 years ago, but begins to pick up after 4,000 years ago, with the development of the windmiller culture along the eastern side of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. Probably describing a subgroup of Panutian speakers, archaeologists have excavated a similar unifying array of artifacts at burial sites all dating from around 4,000 to 2,500 years ago. These windmiller sites were often located on small hills overlooking the Central Valley floor, 
perhaps used as winter residential bases that were alternated with seasonal occupation of the nearby Sierra Nevada foothills. They were likely exploiters of marshland and riparian food sources and helped lay the foundation for later cultural development in the Central Valley. Some of these windmiller burial sites in the Central Valley also include people who were interred with an extra skull or skull fragment, and other skeletal remains appear to be missing their skulls entirely. This altered skeletal pattern has been found at multiple sites across the Central Valley, and for decades, archaeologists figured they represented grisly trophies of intervillage warfare. But is that quick assumption really the truth? One such site on Marsh Creek, east of Mount Diablo and south of the Delta, revealed eight people buried with an extra skull, and another seven people were missing their skulls, among the 480 total buried there. Chemical analysis of bone tissue left behind, specifically a process called stable isotope analysis, reports that those who were buried there had eaten local food for at least years before their death, indicating that they weren't hostile outsiders who fell in battle with the locals. Osteological data, like injuries left behind on bones from a fatal projectile point or deadly bludgeoning, indicates that this sort of interpersonal violence was rare among the inhabitants buried at this site. The altered skeletal remains were evenly balanced between male and female, further suggesting that male-dominated warfare was not connected to their having an extra skull or being skullless in burial. Lastly, multiple burials at singular plots signal reuse of the same burial spots by single-family units, thus making it unlikely that people would want to toss in a decapitated head of one of their enemies into the same burial plot with the remains of their ancestors. Rather, the placements of these disattached skulls were most likely related to ancestor veneration. In a 2016 paper, archaeologists studying the site have suggested this possibility. Placing a skull with the remains of another whole person may be a sort of cultural compromise, allowing that person to be effectively buried with two kin groups at the same time by being interred with the partial physical remains of one member of an outside kin group, while still being wholly interred with their own kin group. The question of the disattached skulls here is the sort of mystery that archaeologists working in California continue to uncover. In addition to the technological and demographic changes that occurred between five and 3,000 years ago, climatic changes were happening as well. This span of time shifted back to the gradual return to cooler, wetter conditions, which also slowed the rise of sea levels to about 16 to 20 feet within current sea levels. The rising ocean inundated and filled in San Francisco Bay, but that deceleration of sea level rise made possible the formation of a ring of estuaries, marshes, and wetlands surrounding the bay and acting as resource-rich draws to humans looking for unoccupied places to settle. Evidence of oyster and clam use at San Francisco Bay begins at this time, around 5,000 years ago, precipitating a rapid buildup in population that is reflected by an increase in Bay Area archaeological sites around 5,000 to 3,000 years ago. These Bay Area sites are categorized as representing the Berkeley pattern culture 
which was probably another product of the westward expansion of Penutian speakers out of the Great Basin and into California. Compared to the Winsmiller culture just to their east, the Berkeley pattern is characterized by much higher use of mortar and pestles, a wide variety of aquatic animal food sources, and more bone and less stone artifacts left behind at archaeological sites. Beginning around 3,000 years ago, Yuto Aztecan speakers began making their way into the southern deserts, eventually moving into the southern coastal areas and southern Channel Islands. Evidence also exists of usage of Lake Cahuilla by Yuto Aztecan speakers around 3,000 years ago as well. In the Santa Barbara Channel area, single-piece fish hooks replaced compound hooks, which along with the development of the tamal led to increased fishing in the open sea and increasing population density. The Berkeley pattern culture extended out from the bay, where the formation of huge shell middens demonstrated the increasing importance of shellfish as a food source. Later, shell middens points to evidence of initial occupation of the Mendocino and Humboldt coasts from about 2,000 to 1,500 years ago. Geographically, this overlaps with the last migration of Athabascan and Algic speakers into the North Coast ranges. Their sedentary, salmon, acorn, marine-based economy may have been established through aggression and violent replacements of earlier occupants, indicating that the phase of ideal free distribution in California had come to an end at this point. Also around one and a half thousand years ago, bow and arrow technology was introduced into California, probably from the east, and spread throughout the rest of the state's indigenous culture areas over the following centuries. The bow and arrow revolutionized hunting and warfare among the various California cultures, and may have contributed to the establishment and growth of territoriality and the end of ideal free movement for nomadic hunter-gathering people. Also around this time, about one and a half thousand years ago, California was for the first time totally occupied by humans, from the northwestern forests to the southeastern deserts. Zooming back in on the Santa Barbara Channel area, the time between one and a half to 1,000 years ago witnessed the introduction of a crucial piece of seafaring technology, the sewn plank canoe known as a tamol. These tamol canoes measured about 20 feet in length and were constructed by sewing together flat, paned planks of redwood with strands of milkweed fiber and sealed with liquid asphalt available from naturally occurring tar seeps in the area. That they were made of redwood is interesting. The material is sturdy and lightweight, so that makes sense, but redwoods aren't native to the Santa Barbara Channel and don't occur naturally anywhere south of, like, Cambria, which meant that tamal building materials were gathered as driftwood floating south on the California current. The tamals were employed in addition to older styles of balsa wraps, made by bundling and tying together tulis or other long reeds, but the tamals were much more seaworthy, and their increased capacity could carry up to two tons of cargo or up to 12 passengers. Now with the ability to better travel on the open seas, the Chumash and eventually their eastern neighbors, the Tongva, gained access to new food sources further offshore. Bigger fish could now be harpooned further out to sea and more securely brought back home. In addition, the Tamal opened up more frequent and reliable trade networks, 
which helps to foster specialization in specific tradable crafts, like shell beads, rather than having people spending time living as generalized hunter-gatherers. The introduction of the tamal may also be tied to increased social stratification, growing the cultural distance between elites and non-elites. It took nearly 500-person days' worth of labor to craft a single tamal, which meant that merely acquiring one in the first place set a person apart as higher status. Recently, a fun little argument broke out among specialists in California prehistory over the tamal, specifically about whether sewn plank technology was independently developed by indigenous Californians, or if the tech was brought to Southern California by long-distance travelers from Polynesia. Sewn planks weren't used to build canoes anywhere else in North America, but were used to construct Polynesian watercrafts, though admittedly these Polynesian boats are much larger and include rigging and masts that don't show up on tamals. Pro-contact archaeologists argue that the word tamal is itself borrowed from Polynesian languages. Borrowed because there was no pre-existing Chumash or Tongva word that better described the sewn plank concept. However, archaeologists on the independent development side of the debate question the timing, specifically whether the nearer islands of Hawaii were occupied before or after the tamal appeared in Southern California. Pro-contact archaeologists counter with other possible clues, such as genetic evidence of the introduction of Polynesian chickens into South America, and oral narratives, published by mid-19th century native Hawaiian scholar Samuel Maniakalani Kamakau that depict round-trip journeys from Polynesia to North America. Personally, I'm not completely swayed by one side or the other, but Polynesian contact with North America would make Christopher Columbus even less important historically than he currently is, and I'll always be happy to contribute to that process. The spread of the tamal along the Southern California coast and the bow and arrow everywhere else in California coincided with a dramatic change in global weather patterns called the Medieval Climatic Anomaly, or MCA for short. Lasting from roughly the years 800 to 1350, shifting climates during the MCA may have spurred the collapse of the classical Maya civilization in Mesoamerica, may have spurred Vikings to expand outward from the Nordic countries, and also may have spurred complex environmental and cultural changes to indigenous California. Out on North America's west coast, the MCA is generally regarded as a warm, dry period, but this was not always the case. If anything, the MCA is better described as a time of dramatic fluctuations in climate. For example, the Southern California coast swung from drought between 750 and 770, high rainfall between 800 and 980, rapidly developing drought between 980 and 1030, more high rainfall between 1030 and 1100, and more sustained drought between 1120 and 1250. The decades-long extent of these droughts are unlike anything recorded in the state since the missions were established. California's terrestrial habitats, already adapted to dry summers and resuscitating winter rains, were substantially affected by these epic droughts and often became less productive. With the California environment's collapsing productivity came increased violent aggression, shifting settlement patterns, shifting diets, declining health, and greater social stratification. Sticking with the Santa Barbara Channel, 
archaeological trends and settlement patterns, evidence of sickness and physical violence, and developments of new trade patterns are all correlated with the assumed demographic stress caused by drought and productivity decline during the MCA. If you're curious why we're staying so long with the Santa Barbara Channel, a relatively small portion of the state, it's because, one, this was the most socially stratified and densely populated area of an already densely populated state, so that's going to draw a lot of anthropological attention, and two, the Channel Islands in particular are free from the type of burrowing varmints that can scramble a very delicate timeline of artifacts while they're still underground. So, Channel Island sites tend to be more reliably dated. On these Channel Islands, for humans, more stable territorial boundaries were established to control scarce supplies of terrestrial food and fresh water in the face of increased competition from other resource-deprived people. Conversely, other less productive sites were abandoned at this time. With increased territoriality comes increased sedentism and decline in nomadic mobility. Higher population densities in sedentary village sites may also have contributed to higher incidences of disease. Osteological signs of poor health and violence reached their peak in skeletal remains dating to this time period on the Santa Barbara Channel with bow and arrow injuries in particular peaking around the years 1200 to 1300, during the later part of the MCA. The medieval climatic anomaly has also been long associated with increased social complexity among the Chumash and Tongva-speaking peoples. We've discussed the Tamal's contribution to increased social stratification, but these cultural shifts towards hereditary chiefs and craft specialization may have also been fueled by changes in environmental conditions as well. Uneven distributions of grave offerings indicate that hereditary elites were now socially established. One cultural shift that could have helped fuel social stratification was the increase in production of shell beads on the Channel Islands, leading to an increase in trade, wherein islanders would exchange their shell beads as currency for food or other resources from people on the mainland. If a group or powerful chief gains control over the production or trade of shell beads, then their prestige in the community would obviously increase. The social complexity formed during the MCA would continue on through until contact with Spanish missionaries in the late 1700s. While localized shell bead trade increased during the MCA, longer distance trade between coastal and inland desert cultures collapsed, as desert-produced pottery disappears from the Southern California coast after the year 1100. While the dramatic, decades-long shifts in climate during the MCA certainly created environmental challenges and cultural changes within indigenous Californian cultures, those peoples also proved themselves to be resilient. The story that chiefs got powerful in the Channel Islands by controlling shell bead trade for increasingly necessary food imports from the mainland can overlook the ability of the islanders to adapt to new climatic conditions. Plants that continue to grow on the island, such as the wildflowers known as blue dicks, can provide edible roots that are more nutritiously productive than acorns. And, as impressive a seagoing craft as the tamal may be, shipping enough acorns or other kinds of gathered food across the channel to the islands to feed everyone who lives there would have been logistically unfeasible. 
shell bead trade definitely existed between the islands and the mainland, but perhaps it may not have been a strategy to survive through periods of drought, but simply an opportunity to acquire a wider variety of all kinds of valuable resources. Further north on the central coast, the medieval climatic anomaly impacted trade, settlement patterns, but also again features signs of resiliency from the people who lived there. Similar to the Channel Islands, many village sites on the central coast were abandoned, while other sites began human occupation around this time. There is also evidence of a collapse in trade of obsidian bifaces and other nondescript tools from people living on the east slope of the Sierra Nevada, a trade that had existed for nearly 5,000 years prior and had peaked a few centuries before the MCA collapse in the archaeological record. At one site near Morro Bay, archaeologists uncovered a dramatic dietary shift towards marine food sources during the MCA. At this site, consumption of marine and estuarial birds reached an all-time high, while consumption of deer hit a low point, and rabbit consumption remained relatively constant. Shifts away from deer as a food make sense if the deer themselves can't find any plants to forage during long-term droughts. The medieval climatic anomaly shifted which food people ate on the central coast, but perhaps did not bring on a total food supply crisis. A separate archaeological site near the Bay Area suburb of Pleasanton also exemplifies resiliency in the face of sudden environmental shifts. Northern California in general shows less evidence of violence linked to droughts, sustains viability of acorns as a food source, and cultural changes less directly connected to climate. At the Canyon Oaks site near Pleasanton, scientific analysis of skeletal remains show that the general health of the local population was stable through time, despite the changes in climate. The site also shows little evidence for violent injuries inflicted on skeletal remains, nor not much evidence in stress-related effects on human growth. However, osteological analysis did show that men at Canyon Oaks began consuming more protein-heavy diets than women during the MCA, perhaps reflecting a shift towards delta fishing, a traditionally male activity in this cultural setting, resulting in men eating more fish than women who continued the more generalized hunting-gathering rules. Resource instability may have still been an issue, but the people who lived at the Canyon Oaks site were able to offset that instability by shifting their diets towards what was now available. And that's where we'll leave off this week, at the end of the medieval climatic anomaly in California. I would like to give a particularly grateful shout out at this point to California Polytechnic University archaeologist Terry Jones, who either wrote or co-wrote or edited at least half of the academic papers this episode is based on. And thanks to all of you for listening. Having whizzed by 12,000 years of cultural development this week, next week we'll slow way down and examine in detail the bewilderingly diverse collection of people who inhabited California at the point of first contact with Europeans. Next time on A History of California.